0: dear dearly, father thank you so much for this privilege for this wonderful honor of gathering together as family thank you for a unity described in the Bible as holy even as sanctifying father we're so blessed to be partakers of it may we be encouraged on this day by each other's faith may we rejoice understanding and knowing what your love is in our lives father we're so blessed this evening we just pray for those that desire to be with us but can't be for a variety of reasons father you know best and we just pray that you return them to us as soon as possible your will be done of course we pray also for those that are still lost in this world father for they are many just ask that maybe we be given the opportunity to evangelize them. We might rejoice with them for all of eternity. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, deceitfulness of Sin, let's see, part 42. Uh, I want to share a quote with you on the topic of joy. Uh, Why? Because I think a lot of people are confused about the very definition of it. Uh, If I'm not careful, it sways on me as well, so um, it's not a novel concept. I just think that if you pay too much attention to the world and what it defines as joy or happiness or even peace, um, your own definitions can become perverted and you suffer for it. And so it's really good every so often for us to go back and sort of um, cement or re cement into place our core definitions. And joy really is one of the fruit of the Spirit, as we know. And it's real important uh, that we don't become frustrated with uh, bad definitions because as God's sanctifying us, we might be. Uh, moving away from, at least in our heads, away from what we think joy is supposed to be. And that in itself, because of that confusion, can cause additional loss of real joy and additional um, dysfunction and misery. So I think a lot of people are confused about the very definition of joy, at least from a biblical perspective. Um, I'm going to borrow from another book I've been reading, uh, titled, An Exposition of First John. Uh, again, same guy, A.W. Pink. Um, Seem to be on a pink roll here. But uh, anyways, An Exposition of First John. First John, by the way, is just absolutely mind-blowing. But anyways, I'll uh, <clears throat> share this with you. Up here on the board, A.W. Pink, on biblical joy. A word now on the nature of this joy. That is, the more necessary, since not a few are apt to naturalize and carnalize the same, regarding it as a mere spirit of elation or happy feeling of exhilaration. Instead, it is a heavenly grace, a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, and therefore something spiritual, supernatural, and divine. God is alike its author, object, and maintainer. As the peace which he gives passeth all understanding, Philippians 4.7, so the joy, he communicates, is said to be unspeakable, 1 Peter 1.8. Not only excelling sense, but beyond full comprehension. It is an elevation of soul after the Lord and of things above. Again, we're talking about joy, the biblical concept of joy. It is a delighting ourselves in God. For since all happiness be the enjoyment of the chief good, then all felicity is bound up in Him. Joy is heaven begun in the saint, for his blessedness here and hereafter differs not in kind, but only in degree. It is therefore a joy which is pure and unalloyed, or alloyed, excuse me, as spiritual love is far more than a sentiment, as God's peace is more excellent than mere placidity, or tranquility of mind, so the joy which Christ imparts to the believer is vastly superior to any natural emotion. And then finally he says this, it is a state of exaltation, a complacence of heart, a full satisfaction of soul as it feasts upon a perfect object. Isn't that wonderful? Fantastic. I know his words are lofty, um, it's just the way they wrote back in the day, uh, but it is a wonderful description of biblical joy, that's very different, biblical joy, and I hope you see the differences between what God describes as his joy, and what the world offers you, one is eternal, the other temporal and fleeting, so I just wanted to bring that sort of the bear. Uh, at the start of class here to sort of get you jazzed up about something so wonderful uh, that is given to us by means of grace. With that said, I want to do a review, as I always do, a quick one. Uh, So much precipitates out of these um, reviews of reviews, believe it or not. Tuesday's message added some nice reminders for all of us as we continue to contemplate the deceitfulness of sin. Remember the emphasis. This, what is it? Part forty-two now. Uh, yeah, part forty-two. Uh, the emphasis has always been on the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is not that hard to understand. Any dis- disobedience or um, disorientation to God's will—that's the shorthand version of the definition of sin. But it's how it manifests itself in our lives. It's the deceitfulness of that thing in our lives. How it flies under the radar. And what have you. So this uh, past Tuesday's message added some nice reminders on the deceitfulness of sin. For example, it's so easy to assume we're doing things rightly and we become lax, uh, passive even, uh, almost routine. You know, humans love routine, right? And what happens is when you settle too deep into a routine, uh, things become just that. Uh, Well, if there's a routine, there's not a whole lot of growth going on. There's not a a whole lot of shaking the bushes, so to speak. You're just going through the motions, you know, church and work and home and eating and church and work and home and eating, da-da-da-da-da-da. And you don't even actually allow the Spirit to challenge you along the way. And so that routine uh, can get sort of um, sticky, if you would. And that came out on Tuesday evening, which was nice. So again, it's just easy to think and to assume in a routine that we're doing things rightly, that we have it all nailed, you know, that everything's going the way it should be, blah, blah, blah. We never step back or we fail to step back at times. So the Bible teaches us to constantly, constantly examine ourselves for the sake of sanctification. I believe that's one of the greatest, arguably, the greatest thing. Um, other than worshiping God, um, certainly way up there in terms of priority of prayer. Just having that time to pray and examine oneself and allow the Spirit to speak directly to you as an individual. Uh, not, see, I'm not necessarily speaking to you the way He might in prayer. Um, we have a much more uh, deeper sense of ourselves, I think, in prayer and God is able to um, instruct us accordingly, uh, which is, again, why prayer is so important. But nonetheless, the Bible teaches us to constantly examine ourselves for the sake of sanctification. And just as a side reminder, remember, sanctification is what brings glory to God. He sanctifies us to glorify Himself. He says, see how grace is? See how wonderful grace is? It can take cockroaches like these people and make something that brings glory to me." And so sanctification is a really big deal to God. And so we are asked and commanded to examine ourselves constantly for the sake of that end goal of sanctification, to bring glory to God. And so you've got to think that way. You don't just get on your knees or you don't just pray to God, however you're doing that thing, for your own sake, which is a mistake that a lot of immature believers make. They just pray for themselves. You know, I, I, Dad, I need this. You know, I need this. I got to balance my checkbook. You know, I, 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 I. And they forget that sanctification is to bring glory to God. And so it's not a me fest when you pray. Um, it's really about fellowshipping with the Lord, uh, the one who loves you, the one who wants to sanctify you, and ultimately bring glory to Himself so we can all rejoice in the process up here on the board so our continual perspective this is what came out should be like this quote thank you god for helping us examine ourselves so that we don't continue to dishonor you in ways we haven't even understood remember i uh maybe a month ago so uh, i was talking about not offending someone that you love if you love someone you don't want to offend them And so you say thank you to that person when they say, hey, you know what? Uh, You're offending me. You're hurting me. I didn't even know. Thank you for letting me know. Well, that's what happens uh, when we examine ourselves, when we pray to God uh, for guidance. He might say, you're hurting me. You're hurting the name of my son by doing this thing or by living this lifestyle. You're damaging the body of Christ by living this way. Um, and so we have to say thank you to God. That's our perspective. It's one of, the, one of the reasons we can live in gratitude. Thank you to God for examining or allowing us to examine ourselves and helping us along the way. So, uh, much, uh, so much of our messages as of late have been focused on our affections. And therefore, the direction of our worship. So much of our messages have been focused on our affections. Again, obviously, the point on the board, it brings us a sense of gratitude. And when you have a sense of gratitude towards anyone, you have a certain what? Affection for them. And once you have that certain affection for them, it it sets your direction. And In God's case, it's who we want to worship, which is why he commands us, have gratitude. This is what's pleasing to me. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. Give uh, give thanks in everything, right? That's 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 18. Because this is what's pleasing to me. So much of our messages have been focused on our affections and therefore the direction of our worship. Even the very best churches in human history have to be prompted by the Lord God from time to time. I do believe we have a godly church. Um, I probably wouldn't remain behind this pulpit if I didn't believe that. Um, I don't think that makes any one of us special. I think that it's a uh, um, it's a testament to God's grace. Looking at all of you, <laughs> right? You guys are like, wait a minute, whoa, is that a joke? I'm serious. We're any This church is a testament to God's grace. Can I get an amen at least? Right, yeah, I mean, come on. You know you better than I know you, and you know how sick you are. And so he's carried us and sanctified us along uh, quite a bit uh, over the years but even so even in light of all that um, what the bible teaches us is that even the very best churches need to be prompted need to be corrected need sort of uh uh, hey you know a little bit of a wake-up call here don't get stuck in this routine thinking you're all that Um, For example, on Tuesday we noted the church at Ephesus. Go to Revelation 2, verse 2. Revelation 2, verse 2. I'm having quite a battle up here with my spittle. I don't know what's going on. TMI? Revelation 2, 2. So this was to the church at Ephesus, really, I mean, by all accounts, I mean, in today's day and age, this would be a superstar church. But this was a, a standout church in a good way. Revelation 2.2, 2, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men or women, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, excuse me, and have not grown weary. In other words, you've fought the good fight. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That's quite an indictment, really. Uh, You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deed you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Remember the context here that John is writing about uh, at the behest of the Lord is that uh, this is to a whole church. In other words, the church itself, unless it repents, you know, as a church, he will remove the lampstand. So it's entirely possible that God remove a non-functioning church or a failing church or however a dysfunctional church. Uh, from the body split it up in other words happens all the time i believe Um, and that's what he was saying Uh, you've lost your first love you've lost your fervor apparently for me probably because they got good you know and they said we're pretty good that's why i can rarely tell you people what i just told you two minutes ago about how i think our church is because then everybody's heads go and it's yeah you know we are kind of a swell group aren't we <laughs> and that threatens the very nature of what I just told you. And so um, this is possible. You have left, left your first love. And some of you as individuals can relate to the church of Ephesus. Some of you were more um, diligent, were more, um, were filled with more gratitude towards God, I don't know, maybe the day after you were saved than some days today. I'm not saying always, but some days, maybe weeks at a, at a time. You you suffer some form of um, backsliding, if you would, uh, and you need to repent. And a lot of what's been coming from this pulpit, really, on the coattails of self-examination, has been just that. You, some of you need to repent. And that's between you and the Lord. My job is just to say what I just said. Listen, some of, I don't know who I'm talking to but I'm filled with the Spirit, some of you need to repent of lifestyle choices, of recent choices, recent bad choices. Some of you need to repent like now. I don't know who I'm talking to, but we must be aware of our fleshly appetites for things that don't bring glory to God. It's that tried and true litmus test we all must face that goes, is what I'm doing, or even thinking about doing, bringing glory to God? Is what I'm doing or thinking about doing, bringing glory to God? And if not, dwell on the following three verses. These all came out this past week. Philippians 3:19, "Whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite? whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 6, 12, part B, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, I'm not going to be mastered. My God is not going to be my appetite. 2 Peter 2, 19, For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So if you're overcome by some appetite, and we've gone over them this past week, starting with Sunday, some, you, you choose it. Whatever that appetite, whatever that lust pattern is in your soul, if you're overcome with it, now you worship and serve and celebrate that thing. And it could be something as, quote-unquote, good or benign as your feelings, your emotions. <clears throat> if you're overcome by your emotions, you know what you're a slave to? Your emotions. Your emotions. That's no good. In contrast to Philippians 3.19, and as the root cause for 1 Corinthians 6.12 and 2 Peter 2.19, we have, go to Romans 12.1. Romans 12, verse 1. What do we have? What does the Bible say? What should be our focus? Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I mean, you've been redeemed, right? Your life is paid for. It's not even yours anymore. You've been bought out of the slave market of sin. Therefore, what's your duty? That's a big word, isn't it? Duty. Sounds an awful lot like obedience. What's your duty to the Lord? I mean, He is your master, right? That's why I believe a lot of so-called Christian churches do not teach about the Lordship of Christ. They even mock it, which is heresy. But they do um, because it really destroys a watered-down gospel presentation. But nonetheless, is he your master or not? And if you believe that, if you're a true believer in Christ Jesus, then your duty is to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. That's what's acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, it's your duty to worship God. A lot of people don't think about it that way. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect or matured. So, as we can see, the Bible presents us with two opposing positions. Both speak to our affections and therefore our direction. Do we love our little gods or do we love God? Do we love our little gods? Do we have an appetite that follows them? Do we have affections for them? You can choose your poison, or do we love God? Whatever we are in love with, we will be preoccupied with. Now, I was thinking about that. Whatever we're in love with, we will be preoccupied with. And that's a very dangerous reality, because if that thing isn't God, if God's not your first love, what did we just read about the church of Ephesus? I have this against you. You've left your what? First love. you are First priority, your first love, in, in, in terms of standing even, in terms of priority in your life. If Jesus is not your number one squeeze, <laughs> if he's not your number one love in your life, above everybody or anything else, you have a problem. Which is probably, I'm going to go out and limb, probably why some of you are miserable. It literally is that simple. It's literally that simple. When God fades to black and other priorities take uh, priority in your life, um, that's the source of, uh, what would you call a, a visceral form of, of misery. You can't even put your finger on it. Um, but when you leave your first love, um, there's a separation between both of you. In a sense, he's leaving you. Do you understand? Uh, that fellowship is being stretched to its very ends. So, whatever we are in love with, we will be preoccupied with. So, I was thinking about that. Up here in the board, preoccupation is a big word. And have you ever noticed that the things we are preoccupied with tend to demand our attention, even if and when we want nothing more than to turn it off You ever notice that if you're preoccupied with something? um, That thing, being a little God, demands, (laughs) hey, you're not getting away that that easy. Even though you want to, uh, in, in your brain, if you would, to turn it off, you can't. Because you have an affection. You've given something or someone a place in your soul that's even That might be on equal standing with God or maybe even above God. So, just a question I'm throwing out there. You don't have to answer it um, to anyone but the Lord, or to yourself. Have you ever noticed that the things we are preoccupied with tend to demand our attention, even if and when we want nothing more than to turn it off? Here's the solution to that problem. Go to Colossians 3, verse 2. Colossians 3, verse 2. It's hard to turn them off, in other words. They just cling to us. Colossians 3, 2. Set your mind on the things above. Not on the things that are on earth. Geez, that just seems so simple, doesn't it? Well, what's the problem then? Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. It just seems almost too simple. How about verse 17? Go to 17. We saw this on Tuesday. Verse 17. So keep your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. Whatever you do in word or deed, that's really. Another way of saying anything, whatever you do, everything, anything, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. In other words, um, instead of moaning and groaning about, you know, the things you don't have or the things you have not got, or the things you prayed for and he hasn't answered, blah, blah, blah. How about just being grateful um, to have eternal life? To be grateful that he chose to save you and he didn't have to while you were still hopeless up here on the board if you do anything for him consider it a form of worship and it really is that came out on Tuesday as well colossians 3:17 to 25 romans 12:1 if you do anything for him consider it a form of, wor- of worship <clears throat> what do we learn in romans 12:1 <coughs> it's your spiritual service of worship it's your service to him uh, to lay down your life for Him. That's your form of worship. So in other words, your life, if you're living as unto the Lord, if you're walking by the Spirit, is a form of worship. And it's, and it's public. It's, it's known to others, even. Which is uh, why we are called to be uh, a, a type of ambassador, even, for Christ. Not being of this world, but in it. And just... Um, as a balance statement to all that, I don't want people to get, when you teach this strongly for this long, people tend to get kind of um, beat down a little bit because they keep failing the test. It's like, yep, I agree. I don't do it. Yep, agree with that point too. I kind of stink at that one. Yep, I agree with that too. Man, am I ever going to be doing anything right? Well, you're here. You're still moving in the right direction. So I'm gonna borrow from <coughs> excuse me from MacArthur on this one. <coughs> and do not be condemned. It's about direction, not perfection. I almost stole it, but then the spirit beat me up. He's like, no, 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 no. Don't be plagiarizing if there's any such thing. But anyways, he's the guy who said it. It's not about direction or excuse me, it's about direction, not perfection. So as long as you can say, you know what, you know, I look behind me, man, I forward some bad land back there. I ripped some, I mean, I'm I'm in someone else's business. We're supposed to be, you know, like farmers, supposed to be doing like one straight line, supposed to be like tilling our own little line here, you know what I'm saying? Dropping the peas in behind, that kind of thing. And we turn around, we're like, blasting into that guy's line over here, it's like when you go bowling, you miss the, your own lane. You know, no one's ever done that? Sticks to your finger. Huh? You blast it in someone else's lane, you get the dirty looks. As long as you're going in the right direction, you're doing better than you were before you were unsaved. It's one of the assurances, if you read that blog a couple of weeks back, it's one of the, the assurances of your salvation that even though you might be bumbling around, you fall seven times, he picks you back up seven times because that's what a righteous man does. You're here, you got back up. You might have fallen a lot today or this past week, but you know what? You're here, you're listening to uh, this message from the Spirit, and he's encouraging you, saying, look, I know you're not perfect, so don't beat yourself up to the point where you want to quit. That's really what the kingdom of darkness wants about direction and you should always consider that the bible teaches us though that if we obey if we obey we are blessed if not then we aren't so if you go ripping into someone else's lane and uh, create havoc in someone else's life because you're a selfish self-loving person in that moment um, you're not going to be blessed by that you uh, reap what you sow we know this from holy scripture The Bible teaches us that if we obey, we are blessed. If not, then we aren't. And obedience at a high level means keeping the spiritual rudder facing true north. Again, obedience, period. Otherwise, it's self-induced misery. You cannot blame uh, God for your misery. You can't blame your spouse, your children. Your neighbors, your boss, you can't blame anyone. The people, your subordinates, um, you can't blame anybody for your misery. Because if you're living as under the Lord, you're untouchable. That's the whole point. You're untouchable. The moment you become touchable, the moment that you allow others or outside influences to rock the boat, to that degree, somehow you're infected. And if you go right back down to the root cause, it usually has something to do with obedience. You're probably in the wrong place. Maybe you've made some poor decisions. I don't know. But usually it comes down to obedience somehow, some way, and self-induced misery is the result. But here's the question. What is misery's root? God will ordain misery but he does not desire it for his children, ultimately speaking. I mean, he'll allow it to teach you a lesson, to sanctify you, to uh, reorient you to himself. But he's not the author of it, per se. God will ordain misery, but he does not desire it for his children. Misery is fruit of human flesh. You may be, in general, miserable, but the root cause is often one or two specific areas of sin you persist knowingly in. That's usually what i found, and that's almost more of an experiential issue. Usually the root cause of your misery is some specific area of sin that you persist in. And chances are, if you've been at this church for any period of time, you probably know what it is. And you choose to live in it anyways. And you say, but they're totally unrelated. I mean, that doesn't have anything to do with this. Oh, yes, it does. You might be shocked at what disjointedness over here can do to you over there. And I think we like to—I think we like to play that little categorization game. Like, oh, I can put this little thing over here, this little awfulness in my life, <laughs> this little what, this you know, this little festering beast of or nastiness in my life. I can just you know, cordon it off. And I'll just do it on, you know, Monday nights from 10 to 12 and Saturday mornings from, you know, when no one's looking, 7 to 10. And it's not going to have any, any bearing on the rest of my life. (laughs) Good luck with that. Good luck with that. For example, everybody's favorite topic. You ready? Think about dating. 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 Now there's only a few single people in here and they're like, why well, are you talking about us now? Think about dating. Now I'm not talking about godly courting with the intent of marriage. I'm talking about dating, what America calls dating. Is it fair to say that it's way too easy and even encouraged to become obsessed with romance? Is it fair to say that it's way too easy and even encouraged? I mean, it's encouraged. Now, how does a lovely young lady like you, how are you single? Boy, you're a strapping, handsome young man. I got a niece that would really like you. Oh, that's godly. Yeah, that's real godly. Let's just screw up a couple of kids. Nia, you don't like dating? <laughs> Something I need to know, Todd. It's <laughs> not a good answer. <laughs> Move right along. <laughs> Is it fair to say that <laughs> that it's way too easy and even encouraged to become obsessed with romance? Why, what do you why do you think people buy those books, Harlequin romance novels, and... Um, whatever. Why do you think people buy those things? It's because people are obsessed deep back, that's that little that's that little festering little thing over here, right? They always want romance. So I want you to just stop for a second. Just stop about that on that on that note. If you're preoccupied with so-called romantic feelings and God doesn't approve of your activities, so say you're not only just romantic but now you're being romantic with someone else to whatever physical degree or proximity that means. Um, So if you're preoccupied with so-called romantic feelings and God doesn't approve of your activities, and just to throw this in, God is the sole giver of joy um, that we heard about at the start of tonight's message. Hmm. What say you of a person... Actively, willingly, divorced from the only wellspring of joy, peace, and true happiness. What do you think the end game is for this person? What do you think the end game is for this person? Why is it that so many people who have heard messages like this, you know, like stark warnings about dating, and I can tell you, I am... Even in what I would consider uh, proper Christian circles, nobody talks about this. This is a vast minority issue. Nobody wants to talk about it because it's almost like beating people off with a stick. I mean, you're kind of used to it at this point, but, um, you know, imagine me going into the average Christian church and being like, what, what the hell are you people doing? No, for real. What are you doing? Dating? Tell me where it says in the Bible you should be dating, the way you're dating. Tell me, tell me the godly part of what you're doing. Oh, they, I'd probably get run out. Be like, okay, let's take a special offering for Pastor Ed. <laughs> <laughs> guy puts a tiddly wink in there just to make a noise. How about this? One? <laughs> Use tissue. Okay. Why is it that so many people have heard messages like this? You ready? Choose to dismiss this wisdom. Like, knowingly, choose to dismiss this wisdom. Is it possible that they even defend their ungodliness being deceived? Of course. Of course. Because people don't really want the truth. So I was reflecting on that. I wonder how many newspaper and blog columns are written on the betterment of one's dating life. And at the same time I wonder how many people fail to dig even one level deeper into the root cause of their misery. And I also wonder how many know better having heard wisdom on the subject and knowingly disobey God. But I'm lonely. Um, Now you know why. You knowingly disobey God. But I'm lonely. Now you know why. You have knowingly disobeyed God. That's all I can tell you. If you did it right, you wouldn't be lonely. Or you wouldn't have this misery that you're calling loneliness. Let's put it that way. You wouldn't be um, maladjusted to the righteousness of God. You wouldn't be disappointed in your life, in your friendships, in your fellowships, because you'd be oriented to God. And God always takes care of His own. No, 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 no. You chose willingly to go out on your own, disobey God knowingly, and get involved in some romantic snafu. And then you wonder. You have the audacity to wonder. Some of you even pray to God about your misery and you wonder and then a guy like me comes along and does you a huge favor and says I'm telling you why you're miserable it's because you disobey God that's why I'm telling you why you're lonely because you disobey God and it's up to you to choose for God or for self yet Again, and loop back around in this little thing we call dysfunction junction. <laughs> dysfunction junction, what you, nobody? Nobody thinks that's funny? I think that's funny. Nobody Saturday mornings? I'm just a Bill, nobody? Come on, DJ. DJ's still bitter because I ripped on him. Dysfunction, I'm just gonna take one more lap in dysfunction, just one more lap in dysfunction junction. Why am I so miserable? Here's why. Uh Uh-uh. Why am I so lonely? Here's why. Uh Uh-uh. Why me? Here's why. Nope. And eventually, hopefully, the cycle breaks. You listen to someone like me. I don't care if it's me, but listen to God somehow. Somehow you get woken up. You realize that you've been knowingly disobeying God. And all those things that you've been complaining about, and the very reason you quote for disobeying God is the reason, if that makes sense. Is the cure if you get rid of it? Think about that. One of the interesting quotes I picked up from Tuesday evening's message was this. Now you have to think about this a little bit. Keep your chin up. That got me thinking. Stop and ask. For what reason? Fair question. Keep your chin up, son. Keep your chin up. To look up to heaven awaiting the Lord's return? Or to supposedly, you know, survive your own self-induced misery? Keep your chin up. To look up for Him? Say, thank you, God. Thank you. Or, you know, keep my chin up to survive my self-induced misery, you know, like dust myself off by myself. By myself. And trudge on because I'm tough and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this thing and I'm going to, you know, the little engine that could, I'm going to do this thing. And you don't look up though, do you? And I wonder what that kind of um, sentiment, who that comes from. And what the actual meaning is. Usually it's the second meaning. Even in Christian circles. Keep your chin up, soldier. Keep trudging on. They don't want to teach what I just taught. About something, you know, held sacred. In American culture like dating. God forbid I tell you the truth. God forbid I become your enemy. By telling you the truth, right? God forbid I do that thing. For your benefit. For your sanctification. No. You just want somebody to go, keep your chin up, sweetie. Here, here's a little piece of apple pie with some cool whip on it. You'll get better. She'll call you. She'll call back, sweetie. Don't be don't be depressed. She'll call back. He'll call back. He's a he's a jerk, anyways. You don't think it's disgusting. What are we promoting in this country? I bet I bet if we took out That one thing. If we took out ungodliness between the two sexes, what problems would we have anymore? No, I'm serious. Do you know how big that problem is in this world, never mind America? Think about it. Food for thought. Stop and ask, for what reason? Maybe the corollary question is, for who are you keeping your chin up for? For who? You see, there's a counterfeit for everything, included so-called courage. Not to get abstract, but who does that chin of yours even belong to? Think of it this way. Think of your body and life as an instrument that God desires to use to His glory. That's how you should think about your body and your life there's really no place for what uh, Americans call dating. There's really no place for it, even. Not in Holy Scripture. So think of your body and life as an instrument that God desires to use to His glory. Now, getting more practical, on Sunday and Tuesday, we pondered the question, how much active time during the past week have we, de- have we dedicated to worshiping the Lord? How much active time? Here's some additional food for thought up here on the board. Worship time. Church would be a, should be. This may come to a shock to a lot of people. But it's the truth. Church, church like this, should be a much smaller percentage of your overall worship time for the week. If church is the mainstay of your worship, something's right. In other words, is if, is this, you know, if this is the time where you really buckle down, really buckle down, this, this is it, I'm going to church. I'm going to get my favorite drink, my beverage. I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to buckle down. And if this is as good as it gets for you, something's terribly wrong. Terribly wrong. Not kind of wrong. Terribly wrong. This vein of thought precipitated the topic of fighting for quiet time, if you remember, on Sunday. That's why you have to fight for quiet time. I know that part of my spiritual gift is to encourage you to exhort you, uh, even with patience and, 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 and gentleness sometimes, when required, sometimes not. But that's part of my job. But I can't coddle you 24/7. I'm not with you all the time. And some of you are like grown adults, and you, you really need to start acting like grown adults. You know what I'm saying? Like really start acting like a grown adult and say i got to actually start taking responsibility for myself i don't i shouldn't have to depend on some bald guy to 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 get me you know in a fighting mood i need to you know you know rile myself i gotta get i gotta find a way to to fight for this quiet time so i can make good choices up here in the board good cho- speaking of good choices find quiet time to dwell with god even if you Rise before dark to just be with him alone. We saw that with Jesus, remember? He got up in the dark. Scott told the story about walking around and bothering the neighbors. <laughs> Cops are getting called all the time. It's that weird creepy guy down the street again. I think he's looking in our windows. <laughs> Psalm 37.3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. In other words, a relationship with God. Cultivate it. That takes work. Cultivate it. That takes effort. I, always, I get almost livid when someone says, ah, I'm just going to, you know, let God do everything. Because, you know, it's all about grace. Yeah, God, God is extremely gracious. But he also says, you're a fellow laborer. He also commands you to do certain things. He also gave you a free will to sit on your tush or actually get up and do something. You know, take responsibility for yourself, for example. Cut off parts of your life that are no good, that don't bring glory to Him. That's all you. He will be right there to help you, get you through it. That's grace. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Now, We ended the last two messages with something that has come up from this pulpit in years past. Uh, I want to show you a slide first. You ready? Look at the slide. You got it? Okay. Did you see it? Need another shot at it? Nope. Misdirection. Did you catch? Did anybody catch it? How many of you can tell me what was written in the bottom right-hand corner of the slide I just showed you? You're like, there was something written? <laughs> Most of you were too frightened or disturbed by, that's Pennywise, the clown from Stephen King's It. Do not ask how I know that. Well, Pennywise ugly mug got you to miss the words, Jesus loves you. That's what was written down there. They were clearly written at the bottom of the page by the drawing that drew your attention to something else in view. Misdirection is a very powerful tactic that the kingdom of darkness uses on all of us. Here on the board. This is the very lifeline Of the deceitfulness of sin. Misdirection. Do you really think that Satan's that? um, I'm not going to say unary, but I'm not going to say binary. How about uh, unidimensional? Do you really think that Satan and his tactics and his agents are that unidimensional? Hey! Oh, you got me. Here I come. Oh, you got me again. You really think that's how he works? (laughs) He says, all right, I'm going to set off an alarm over there, I'm going to drop a grenade right here, and then I'm going to burn your house down over here. And while you're scurrying around, worrying about the details of life, I'm going to go rob you blind. I'm going to go take advantage of your children. I'm going to do all kinds of awful things in your life while you're attending to this ridiculousness out front. You really think he's that stupid? For some of you, it's your family. For some of you, it's friends. For many of you, it's work. Uh, You name it. Whatever your appetite is for. Whatever it is that you're so glued to, you're not paying attention. That's misdirection. This is the very lifeline of the deceitfulness of sin. It was first made evident in the garden with the words, Has God said? Has God said? Let me get you thinking about something other or someone other than God. Let me get you, let me sow a few doubts. Let me get a a little bit of nastiness stirred up in you. A little temptation going. Let me stir that up. And while you're like, ooh, you know, it's called temptation because you kind of look at it, right? You're like, ooh, that's kind of attractive. And there you go. Next thing you know, you fall. That's what we see in the garden. Misdirection. Look at over here, how oh, I did that. Hey, Jesus loves you. None of you saw it. Why? I bet you if I, I, I was my, I was like, mm, should I do it a second? Should I do it like three seconds? I, I wonder what the threshold would have been. I bet you it would probably been like five seconds, right? That was a second and a half. What if I did it like five seconds? People would like, uh, right? And all the time, said, Jesus loves you right here. What are you worried about some stupid mask? The dude doesn't even exist. And you're like, oh, he's so scary. What? It's a fake clown, people. A bunch of makeup. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? The kingdom of darkness doesn't have any real teeth anyways. Yeah, we do We stare at it all the time. Ooh, scary, or I need it, or whatever your problem is. Misdirection. This is the very lifeline of the deceitfulness of sin. It was first made evident in the garden with the words, Has God said, to misdirect is to disorient to what is otherwise stable, secure, and assured. So how do we avoid falling for the trappings of the kingdom of darkness? We make time for God. It really is that simple. Make time for God. If you're doing something heinous, like I just talked about with the dating scene, stop it. Just stop. Oh, but, oh, no, just stop. Make time for God, for worshiping Him. That is what our prototype did, as we've already noted. So, to answer the question, how do we avoid falling, here's a good place to start up here on the board. Remember, it is Christianity, you know, like Christ. The true perspective of the Christian is to endeavor to be like Christ. Romans 12.2, 2 2 Corinthians 3.18, who for joy, and think about that joy uh, at the beginning of class, who for a joy set before him endured the cross, that's Hebrews twelve, two. This doesn't mean sheer willpower is in view, rather humble submission to the power of God's word and spirit. And that's something we study in John four, twenty-three to twenty-four. We must worship in spirit and truth. That's the answer. And as a side note, <clears throat> as a point of encouragement again boy the spirits being kind tonight this also doesn't mean that we are going to be downtrodden 24 by 7 in fact in light of truth we are totally blessed now listen this is hard to teach because it's it's convoluted it shouldn't be but it is we are totally blessed by shedding the disappointment of never arriving at a consistent place of happiness You get that? We are totally blessed by shedding the disappointment of never arriving at a consistent place of happiness. Isn't that the carrot America puts before its citizens? You know, do this and you'll be happy? Why does it never work? Because it's ungodly. I think at the start of the blog that I wrote about, you know, the pursuit of happiness was, hey, sweetie, Marry yourself a guy, you know the the prince charming guy that makes good money, and you know hey, where's Christ in all this? What are you doing? Just pursue this thing and you'll be happy. How many How many ladies are gonna keep falling for that ridiculous lie from the King of Darkness? There is no do this and you'll be happy. There isn't. It's a big lie. But that's what America is really good at lying. But to broaden it, doesn't that sound just like, you know, do this and you'll be happy? Doesn't that sound just like the world's take on religion? Do this and you'll get happiness? Do Christianity and you'll be happy? Yeah, I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian to follow that creed. Matter of fact, most non-Christians will actually accept that. Because all they know is the moral, the so-called moral side of Christianity. And they're good with it. Because it says stuff like, you know, thou shalt not murder. So that's good. Because at least I know if you're a Christian, you're not going to want to murder me. So there's, you know, they're good. thou shalt not steal, covet my wife, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's good. Those are all like moral things that I can deal with. I'm cool with that. So yeah, do these things and you'll be happy. That's the world's take on religion. It pushes it at us. You know why? Because... It's because, from the world's perspective, religion, that kind of religion, is but one of many, quote, options to happiness. The evil presupposition is that all forms of happiness are the same. And therefore, regardless of our faith, we are all marching towards the same end goal. And that's the great lie. So I've got to close here in a moment. On this idea of religion and why it's attractive to people, uh, even so-called well-intentioned people, human nature loves codified, widespread formulas because it can rationalize and then set out to accomplish them. It can reason for them. It can support them in others, even. It becomes an unholy economy. You know what? I kind of like a codified religion. Just tell me what I have to do so that I'm approved. Tell me what I have to do so that I can be happy. Human nature loves codified because it puts you on a works program. It gives you something to do for yourself. So human nature loves codified, widespread formulas because it can rationalize and then set out to accomplish them. It can reason for them. Support them and others even. And that's where the idea of an economy comes into play. God says, that's not how I work. And I think it was a couple of Sundays ago I said this. God says, that's not how I work. My formula, if you want to call it a formula, is G-R-A-C-E. That's the formula. It's grace. That's it. I'll give you peace. I'll give you happiness i'll give you joy i'll make you content i'll give you the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience etc kindness even i'm gonna make you you dastardly devil i'm gonna make you kind no way i know someone right here right now they're way kinder than they used to be 10 years ago way kinder than they used to be 10 years it's an act of god And if I pulled that person up here, they would say, it's true. It's an act of God. I can't even believe it myself. Mom, come on up. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) She's like, it's me. (laughs) Anyways, God says, that's not how I work. My formula is grace. He says, you just need to submit to my means of salvation and deliverance and I'll take care of the rest just submit just obey if you're miserable if you're lonely if you're you fill in the blanks uh, crabby malcontent um, it's right here for the taking he says obey me literally obey me it's like jump on you ready jump on the same boat I'm on we're, we all stay afloat cuz I'm God and I'll give you all that stuff but you got to get on the boat you got to jump on the same boat I'm on you got to obey when I say get on the boat you get on the boat when I say stay on the boat you stay on the boat don't try to creep out after curfew <laughs> like some do <laughs> that's what he says he says my grace is sufficient come with me all good. You just need to submit to my means of salvation, my means of deliverance, and I promise to take care of the rest. Amen. All right, let's bow our heads, Dear Heavenly Father. Thank you so much for allowing us to study Your precious Word this evening. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to teach us, and thank you for this opportunity just to fellowship together as family, that share some laughs together, some aches and pains as well. Father, it's so very important for as long as it's called today that we encourage each other. Thank you for this beautiful gift of encouragement. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes. We hash them out in our own souls in prayer. Thank you for always being there for us in prayer. We just ask all of this in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.